On this episode of the Moon Friends Sports Podcast, Scott and I talk tennis, cricket, AFL, and much more. Scott, how's it going? Yeah, good, thanks, Mo. How are you? I'm doing well, mate. We've, uh, we're recording this uh, sort of a few days after some big events took place and more so to catch our breath, really, more than anything, given, given the, the events of uh, a week or so ago, both across the tennis and the cricket worlds. Yeah, it's, it's been a very big week. I think there's probably a lot of topics that we, we might really only be able to touch the surface of, I think, but uh, definitely some interesting occurrences, and it's a big time of year, especially for AFL. No, look, absolutely, mate. Let's kick off uh, with the Cricket World Cup. You know, I don't think, and it's not that I don't think no one has seen anything like the finish that we saw between England and New Zealand. Just from in terms of you know really good cricket all round, I think there was good enough sort of uh, pull and tug between uh, the ball and the bat. Uh, you know, the Kiwis started off a bit rough and then they ended up with a good total, and then you know some crazy scenes at the end of these English uh, innings there with that four off the bat of Stokes that went to the boundary and, and then count, actually, of the runs there with, with the rules and how to read them, which, you know, long story short, it meant that England were able to finish their innings on the same total as the Kiwis. It then went into a super over. Uh, I think the, the Kiwis got 15 runs. The English needed um, 16, but because of how the rules are, you get 15 and you have more boundaries you win the tournament. What was your over? I mean, there's so much to break down. What was your overall impression, I guess, of that final? And and more specifically, uh, you know, we'll talk a bit more about the end of the English innings and then um, how they won in the in the super over. Yeah, uh, try and digest all of that in uh, in one <laughs> sitting. I think is is the big deal. I think to to give you an idea of of my experience of it, I. I was up watching the the final of Wimbledon at the time, but didn't actually make it all the way to the end. So I woke up, saw the score at the end of the Cricket World Cup, having gone to bed, probably thinking that New Zealand were just going to get pipped. And it then took me a few minutes to work out who had won looking at the score. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's a really strange, strange occurrence, the whole thing. I think interesting to go back to what you started with, one of the big knocks on... ODI and 50 over cricket has always been that it's a, it's a batter's paradise. Um, you know, the, the bowlers have always got the work to do and, and really it's, it's more likely than not that the, the batting sides will, will dominate. And, and at times in the World Cup, that's certainly, that certainly stood. But I think what's really interesting, especially about the, the semifinals, is they were very much dictated by the ball. Like the bowlers dominated, I think, those finals. Um, generally and I think that's really interesting to see because as I said one of the things that that detracts a lot of people and I mean I'm probably guilty of this from 50 over cricket as opposed to test cricket is that you feel like it's weighted a little bit towards the batsman so so that was nice to see from a from a watching perspective as for as for the match itself again I suppose what I was saying there about the bowlers just a couple of unbelievable performances the New Zealand side really they didn't have any outstanding batting performances, but were able to just kind of keep their tally ticking over just enough that they were in the game. They set a target of, uh, I think it was 241, and just enough that they were in the game. But for a long period in their innings, England didn't have a lot of, hadn't lost a lot of wickets, but was struggling to score. 
and uh, and we've kind of gotten to the point, I think, especially in that last last seven or eight overs, where the run rate required was up around nine, and you know you thought, no, no way, there's uh, that the English are going to be able to score this. They're going to have to go mad, and you saw a couple of wickets fall, and you thought, no, this surely New Zealand are going to be able to scrape this away with an unbelievable bowling performance. Those last couple of moments, that that uh, the four or five or however you want to um, talk about it in the overthrows. I come from actually a background of doing a bit of cricket umpiring at a local level myself at a much younger age. And I do know that rule, but it's probably not well understood by most cricket fans. The fact that it depends when the ball is thrown, not when it actually makes contact with the the batsman, if it then goes over to the boundary. And it's a, it's, I mean, I'm aware of the rule, but again, Probably you would see it occur maybe once or twice in a well in a umpiring career. Probably, I mean it's not impossible to hit hit a batsman's bat and go away to the boundary, of course. But but normally we're not talking that happening from a throw from the boundary as well, if that makes sense. That in itself is a very very strange uh, well circumstance, I suppose. But uh, as much as that has led a whole heap of people down to the fact that maybe the English shouldn't have even made it to the super over. I actually I actually feel like the biggest the peer discussion and hopefully something that will change is the fact that this the tie is split on how many boundaries do you score? A bit ridiculous, I, isn't it? I, I don't know about you, Mo, but personally my experience of, of one day cricket is sure it's about a bit of a spectacle as opposed to the the more strategic and long term planning that goes into your innings in a a test match but i really i really feel sorry for the new zealanders that that is the tiebreaker i think I, I get the super over i think that in a lot of ways that makes sense even though that's a cruel as cruel a way to finish a game as any it, it matches up i suppose with a penalty shootout of, of sorts so um i can kind of understand that but uh, i don't know the, the boundary tiebreaker it just doesn't sit well with me now what's your feeling on it yourself like you said the the super over i don't have an issue with and I see it as almost a, a bit better than a than a penalty shootout in, in the sense of probably the comparison for me with a pen, with a penalty shootout would be if let's say they were counting the number of sixes you hit in that super over rather than counting the total number of runs, right? Like you're still sort of trying true staying true to the to the game itself when you're doing a super over, unlike unlike a penalty shootout that sort of you know takes that away. Yeah. In terms yeah. of the most boundaries winning, Scott, if you flip that, right, if you ended the game with an even score and you've hit more boundaries than the other team, it stands to reason that you've also hit more dot balls than the other team. Yeah. <laughs> right? So really, you're saying that, okay, a team that can hit dot ball after dot ball and then there's not much happening hits a couple of more boundaries and all of a sudden they're the ones who get to win. I think that's the most ridiculous thing. It's just so, it's a bit arbitrary. I think maybe in 2020 cricket, you could almost give it a pass. Even then, I think it's a, it's wrong as well. But from in a 50 over game, I still think 50 overs is enough time to be a bit more strategic about a cricket match as compared to 2020 cricket. And and you see that a lot, a lot of the time, especially with the power plays, how certain teams pace themselves or, how certain players come to bowl at certain times and then you have to save your best bowlers till the end if you want them to get the full 10 overs. And there's a lot that actually goes into it. It's still 50 overs. It's still half a day's cricket, I guess, in, if you want to look at it from a test, a test standpoint. And with that said, bringing it down to boundaries, 
I think is is ridiculous. I know the rule was there before the before the tournament, and everyone knew the rules. Blah blah blah. Like I'm not not disputing that bit. That doesn't mean that a rule can't be ridiculous. And in this in this particular instance, the rule definitely is. Yeah, and I, I suppose from a professional standpoint, you can understand that you know the players and the, the the teams obviously all know that that rule exists at the start of the tournament, and they and they sign off on it, but. I, I agree that that doesn't change the fact. I think it's a it's a strange rule. Um, I think probably bigger than any of it is there are so many there are so many other options for tiebreakers. I think that would make more sense yes. than boundaries. And, and if boundaries is to be a tiebreaker eventually, I still think that's strange. But but I think it might change whether or not you go for that winning run on the last ball, perhaps. But but if you're in that situation, as opposed to the team that, that didn't need to, I think there is a there is a difference. I, I feel like wickets is a is a relatively straightforward tiebreaker. So so wickets lost. I think there's probably a few other um, factors. Even wickets lost in the super over again is rewarding. I think too much focus is on the batting side of of the game if you're rewarding boundaries because not necessarily a bad ball if it goes for four but it's a it's successful it's it's the aim of the game to take wickets um and so the team that has taken more wickets in general in my opinion even though the batting side if you like the the number the score of runs that's scored by each, each team is the same there is a difference shown in how successful they were at achieving the other main purpose of the game. And, you know, like in a counterintuitive uh, way, I guess, for, for the sort of the modern cricket fan in terms of all the runs they see, it's actually called a bowling attack and the batting are the ones who are technically doing the defence. So in most sports, it's the attack that's rewarded and not the defence usually. Uh, whereas here, we, we, we tend to reward the defence. So, you know, the batsmen who are defending the wickets, they're the ones who generally get rewarded with shorter boundaries, thicker bats, bigger bats, uh, wides that are called for things that, you know, in, you know, only a couple of a few years ago or a generation ago would never have been deemed a wide, like, you know, something that's still close enough for a batsman to hit. So there's so many things that actually go the way of the batsman these days that, like you said, why not reward the attack for once uh, in cricket with the, the, the number of wickets taken or any other such you know, measure that is not as arbitrary as the number of boundaries. Um, it's just such a, a disappointing way to to lose a game for a New Zealand side that really had done really well. And speaking, you know, to a few people throughout this uh, World Cup and on the podcast, they really made the most of riding that wave of uh, lesser teams that they played to start off with and then benefiting from a washed out game against India where they actually got a point when you could have, you know, you could have put down a loss there for them to begin with. Uh, sorry, a loss there for them against uh, against India. So they rode that wave and then they sort of started to, uh, you know, fall off a bit. As expected, they lost to Australia. They lost to Pakistan. I think they lost to England um, in the group stage as well. So they were coming back to, to where they they meant to be. But by that stage, they'd had enough points on the board to make it through to the semis. And then, of course, th- they did an excellent job against India, right? They were they were able to get through there. Their bowling was fantastic. Great fielding as well. Some of those catches were amazing um, in that in that semi. Uh, and then they made it through uh, to the finals. So they really had a had a great tour- tournament, the Kiwis. The New Zealand uh, attack, I suppose, more than anything, because 
certainly their batting performance, probably, you know, their main their main man in Kane Williamson probably didn't have a uh, as successful a World Cup as many might have expected him to with the bat. But their bowling attack was incredibly consistent in the in those important matches. And that performance against India, I think, really goes to show you that they might not have been the second best team at their best in the World Cup. They were certainly amongst the top two or three most consistent teams when it came down to the matches, you know, the, the teams that aren't necessarily the minnows of the, of the ODI scene. So I, I think even though, and, and when I say consistent, that doesn't mean they number of those games towards the end of their, their group stage, but I, I still think their performance, you could rely on them that they were going to come out and bowl, you know, in the right areas, make the other team actually force the issue and, and score runs. And I think if you actually look at some of the their statistics, their their run rate, their actual run rate wasn't wasn't that great by the end of the, the group stage, but also their net run rate against, if that makes sense, was also quite low compared to some of the other um, top nations. So, and I suppose when we come back to that final, what we have to remember is that it may have been a very strained finish and a very unfortunate way to settle a tiebreaker. But even though I didn't see the whole game live, going back and watching parts of it in the and the spectacle, it's definitely, I mean, a lot of people have said it's the greatest one day international of all time, greatest World Cup match of all time. And and I think that it'd be very hard to dispute. And I think possibly because it was such a great match uh, and there was that tenseness to it, the disappointment is felt doubly that the the way in which it was decided seems a little bit arbitrary and, and disappointing to the average viewer. Absolutely. And it, look, it definitely was a great match. And I, I actually had watched the first innings and then went to bed, Scott, and, and got up at four to see what had happened. And that's when the final over was being bowled of, of the England innings. And look, it, it wouldn't have been as, as great a final without the, obviously, the other half of that final, which was the English team. They were favourites coming into this tournament, playing at home. And for large parts of it, they they played really well. I think their batting was fantastic with Burstow, uh, Joe Root and, and Morgan. They generally done really well throughout the tournament. Uh, a lot of the bowling was good until they got to the final and the openers didn't really last very long. And then the middle order started crumbling. You know, Root and Morgan had 16 between them, you know, on 52 balls. And, and then Ben Stokes. Uh, you know, to the rescue, 84 runs off 98 balls, you know, f- five fours, two sixes, had a great game. And, and you know, he was nearly caught out as well with Trent Bolt had his had his foot on the boundary line, cost him a six, you know, just everything that went right for them. And then he was sort of, you know, Ben Stokes jumped to get that extra run in and, and hits the ball and it goes down for four. Crazy stuff. But the, the English, you know, they, they kept their end of the bargain, I thought, during that World Cup. And, and they played really well. And shout out to Jofra Archer, who in the in the extra innings, um, it's, he started off quite poorly, I think. He, he bowled a wide and then he got hit for six. And, you know, he could have easily crumbled from there, but he kept his discipline and made sure that he, he bowled some balls that needed to be hit for runs and not sort of uh, you know giveaways and I think that's what kept him in the, in the second half of that of that super over uh, and they managed to to squeak by yeah I, I think you make a really good point I think the English certainly their batting lineup was well well represented uh, at the World Cup and one of the surprising things about the, the final is that they did really rely on one or two players of really I think at one stage they were three or four down and really struggling for runs they were well behind the the 
required run rate, which was, I think, somewhere around about the four and a half to five marker. So so they really were struggling to to actually score and, and really did rely quite heavily on, on Ben Stokes, who, by the way, during the World Cup, took one of the most ridiculous catches I've ever seen in my life, which he had no excuse to take, I think, if everybody who's listening to this, if they haven't seen it, go and take a look. If you can ever be more out of position to take a, an outfield catch and then make it look like that was your plan the whole time, <laughs> just a smooth arm, over the back, almost like a backhand catch, I suppose, over the, over the back and a smooth dive to finish it. I've, I've never seen anything like it, but he clearly clearly was uh, a star performer for England at this World Cup and, and maybe has... Uh, helped to right some of the wrongs of his past because we all know that he's had a, a bit of a checkered past uh, with his behaviour off field. So I, I think one of the things about the the semis and the final itself that really was gratifying for me to see is is I do I appreciate good good batting and and I appreciate the fact that fifty uh, fifty cricket so fifty over cricket is weighted towards the batsman, but I really do uh, enjoy it when they have to work against uh, a strong bowling attack with their tails up. And I think in both cases, in both innings, the New Zealand innings, they were at a stage where they, they faced that. And certainly the English were, were in a position where they, they, as you say, that everything had to go right for them just to, to scrape to the same total with, with a couple of very, uh, very lucky instances, including the, that uh, the catch on the boundary where he stepped on the, stepped on the rope and uh, the, obviously the overthrow incident we talked about before. So but I really do like the idea that the batsmen have to struggle for their runs. And that's one of the things about test match cricket that's always drawn me towards it. I think it's definitely one of the reasons why those finals were so watchable uh, and will probably be remembered as one of the best finishes to a, a World Cup, despite, despite how the result at the end of the day might have been uh, decided. Yes, and uh, of course, that Ben Stokes catch was against South Africa. Uh, the ball was going, I think it looked like it was going for six. And like you said, an incredible catch there. Moving on from one crazy final to another, if you were to read, um, if you were to read these stats at face value and I asked you who, who won this final, you'd give me one answer. You know, if I told you there were, you know, 25 aces versus 10, six double faults versus nine. Here's the kicker though, 94 winners versus 54 and 218 total points one versus 204 you know generally speaking you think there's one that player won that's not what happened though did it unless what unless the other player is Novak Djokovic who (laughs) continually continually uh allows stats to be to look misleading I think crazy Uh, isn't it so of course we're talking about you know, Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer, who went for nearly five hours in the longest ever Wimbledon final, 7-6, uh, 1-6, 7-6, 4-6, and 13-12. And, you know, like, again, you take a step back, and interestingly, all the tiebreaker sets, Novak won, and the sets where there was a break of serve went to Roger. What did you make of that tennis match in terms of quality and what you've seen recently, Scott? Was Novak a deserving winner? Oh, wow. Um, what did I make of it? I have to admit that I foolishly uh, on a Sunday night, the day, day before going back to work, uh, I did stay up and watch that match, but I did not, <laughs> I, I, I did not make it to the finish. Yep. I actually made it until six all in the fifth set, believe oh, it or not, no. before I, I conked out. But I probably made a good decision because the match went for another hour and a half after that. <laughs> it did. Unbelievable. Uh, there's a few 
few talking points outside of the match itself, free the, the tiebreaker 12 all, but unlike the World Cup, I think that was that will be received very positively in the fifth set. Um, it still gave both players a real good opportunity to win with a break of serve, but there was a finish point, and I think that's I think that's a actually a, a good a good way to implement that fifth set tiebreak, especially at, uh, at Wimbledon, where where traditionally it's always been about advantage sets. I agree. Um, I completely agree yeah, with that. Yeah, I I think no one could could ask for more spectacle, but at that point we we probably needed a winner. Unfortunately, if you want a winner. You have to have someone who's not the winner. I don't think I'll, anybody could could rightfully call Roger Federer a loser of a tennis of that tennis match. Uh, but unfortunately, he walks away with a runners-up trophy. And I mean, it's 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 used. It's said all the time that you know, they didn't deserve to be uh, just one winner to that match. But I can't think of a more evenly matched tennis game than than what we than what I saw. A couple of weeks ago, it's just just phenomenal that you can you can go from set to set and and absolutely in that second set when when Roger Federer broke twice, I think against no, Novak Djokovic, who really eventually event, ended up handing the set over to Federer, giving up on the set, and moving to the third, if you like. But the tightness there was there was just nothing given. No, there was no easy point in that match. There were no freebies. There were unforced errors, but they weren't, you know, easy misses off off short balls. They were going for winners because that's what you had to do. And I think as we when we started the at the start of the fifth set, um, you know, it's probably about three a.m. in the morning at this point. But uh, my first thought was, well, surely over the you know course of five sets at this point in the tournament at Roger Day, surely Novak has to be favourite to win this game just from an endurance and fitness perspective. And whilst that happened, I, I'm not sure how, how uh, confident I could be in going, going with that approach the next time because Federer had, had his chances. He had match points uh, on his serve, in fact. Uh, just, I, I, don't, I don't really know how to tell you that even after seeing that that match had finished and, and there had been a winner and you know, Djokovic won and I wasn't particularly surprised, the manner that it had happened, I just, I can't quite grasp it. It's, it's clearly one of the best matches uh, at Wimbledon of all time. I don't know that it, I don't know that it's better than the final against Nadal, but it's certainly on, on a similar par in many ways. Um, but again, just the, the fact that in that fifth set, it really became uh, a bit of a battle of attrition, really. Um, it was just the first person to fall over. What we was what we thought. And unfortunately, Federer, so to speak, couldn't, couldn't just fall over the line. He failed to, to win those two match points and then Djokovic came back and won it in the tiebreak. Uh, I think I made a comment last time I was on your show that some of the best matches of all time that I've seen, or at least to enjoy as a fan, have been the battles between a, a really, really good defender and a really, really good attacker. And not that Roger Federer doesn't have a strong defence, but I felt like that was the, you know, the, the way this match progressed. Djokovic was getting balls back defending and counter-attacking and Federer was really the one making the play, attempting to attempting to finish the points uh, with winners and quickly. And, and I suppose from that perspective, it, it just, even though, even though, you know, there's only one winner, I think both those players, and I think Federer even mentioned it in his aftermatch speech that he, he could only be happy with the way he played. There's very few things apart from those small moments, which of course are what those matches are decided on that you could really try to fix. I stayed up as well, um, not as long as you, 
though. I think I stayed up for three sets and then I'm like, I've, I couldn't do much more. I had a split screen going between the tennis and the cricket. It was one of those nights and the GP Grand Prix was on for the Formula One. It was, it was one of those crazy sports evenings, that one. Um, look, I just think, you know, because people look at that and I guess if you want to take a step back and just talk about tennis for a second, the truth is like if you win a, if you're 40 love in a game and then you win it, or you're 40, 30 in a game and then you win it. And the end of the, at the end of the day, it just shows a game one. Yeah. And so the truth is, and we can you know, probably go back and see the stats there. I think there was a lot of games where, uh, and that's where like Federer's winners show up more, uh, you know, all of his aces show up more, et cetera, as well. It's just, there's a lot of games where he, you know, he would have taken a few points off of Novak or he hit that many aces that Novak really didn't have a chance in those points to even hit winners. So it can be skewy a bit. But when you got to the tie breaks, Novak was just able to, like you said, he always gets that one additional ball back all the time. And then, you know, Roger had, at the end of the day, more unforced errors than Novak. And that was the difference, really. He had 10 more unforced errors than Novak. And, you know, you sort of pepper them over the the tiebreakers. And and that was it. That was the difference. It's really that sort of fine a margin between winning and losing. And Novak has just shown that ability that regardless of the surface, his ability to, you know, just bring the balls back, not lose his cool, especially after losing that 6-1. Like you said, he sort of just gave up on it and said, you know, I'm going to reset and go to the third and we can start this, this match from nil-nil again. And he did that really well. And he's stuck in. His endurance is fantastic. So is Rogers, by the way. I mean, he's 37. You know, what an amazing achievement, right? Being 37 yeah. and, and being around a final uh, at Wimbledon uh, then. Now, yeah, the way, the, I was just going to say, the way, way Roger beat Nadal in that semi, I think is, is evidence exactly what you're saying. At, at, even at, at his advanced age, although it's not like he's, he's in, his, in his 60s or anything, even he, he's still playing with some of the, you know, he's running as well as he ever has. He's moving around the court as well as he ever has. He's, it certainly appears as such, even, even if perhaps he doesn't think so. He might know better, but I, I think you're right that that moment, it's this, it's those tense, those clutch moments that have made Djokovic what he is. He knows that he can rely on every one of his shots to do what he's intending when he needs it most in those tie breaks, in those really, those 30 old points. And that's probably why the stats show a slightly different picture to the end result. Look, absolutely. And just a point on Federer's longevity, Scott, I think there's this, you know, whole generation now of athletes across a various number of sports that are really defying what was generally thought to be the, you know, your peak performance as an athlete and how long you played for before you retired. And people like, and, you know, admittedly, it is not as a physically demanding position, I guess, as to most other sports, but Tom Brady, who's the quarterback of the New England Patriots, is, you know, entering his 40th year now and just won a Super Bowl and was the Super Bowl MVP. Um, people like Cristiano Ronaldo, who, you know, looks like he's a 25-year-old and he's, he's 33, turning 34 soon. And he's also, you know, near the peak of his game. It just shows you the, the benefits of sports science, taking care of your body, eating the right way, training right, changing your, I guess, adjusting your weight as you're aging so that you're not carrying as much and adjusting your game with that. I think with Roger, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, he, you know, towards the, I guess you want to call it the end of his career, but as he progressed, he started serving volleying a lot more, trying to finish some games a lot quicker than he used to. And that just, you know, gives you a lot more, you know, longevity as well. So, and with that said, Scott, Novak's up to 16 Grand Slams now. 
and you know Rogers on twenty, Nadal's on eighteen. What do we think? We think Novak's going to going to catch Federer now. Yeah, that's probably the stat that I like to talk about the most. And we we mentioned Nadal on the previous episode where we spoke about the uh, the French Open and the fact that it's unlikely that Nadal will not win another Grand Slam unless, unfortunately, you know, injury catches up with him. I I struggle. I struggle to think that Djokovic won't pass Federer. He's only four away now. Uh, and I think every Grand Slam right now, you go in and say, well, Djokovic is favourite to win with the exception of, of Roland Garros, French Open. So where, where you know, if Nadal's playing, he's probably going to be favourite. I think everywhere else you would assume that just because he's so consistent and so, I mean, he he rarely has trouble with any of the players outside of the top 20 in the world. So he cruises through those first few rounds and, and gets his way to the matches that are important and been a long-term performer on that stage. I think I don't think that I can imagine that if Djokovic is around for another five years that he would not win at least another eight, maybe as many as 10 Grand Slams. I think that that could be an, a realistic expectation. If he wins another 10, that would take him to 26, I think. I don't think either of the I don't think either Federer or Nadal can get that high. So provided Djokovic, I know he's had that one that elbow injury that kept him out for a, a good twelve to eighteen months, certainly from being his best. Provided that no other major injuries keep him from uh, performing at his peak, I personally think he'll catch. Uh, he'll be the at the end of the day when we end this generation of amazing players. The stats will say he's won the most and that he won all of them against his main two rivals. Whereas, especially in Federer's case, a few of his initial Grand Slams were perhaps considered to be against the previous generation, which might be considered to be just a little bit weaker. But I think there's very, very hard to argue with if you've got the most and they, you know, many of those finals were against number two and number three on the list that you aren't the, the greatest, at least Grand Slam champion of all time. Yeah, man. And you bring up a great point. And I, that's what I was going to talk about when it comes to talking greats as well. I think your competition matters. And that's part of the reason why I still, from a basketball standpoint, you know, put LeBron up in a competition with Michael Jordan, because I believe he's faced tougher competition than what Michael did. I'm sorry to all the MJ fanatics out there, Eric being number one. I think it, I think it makes a difference. And Roger won his first Grand Slam in 2003. And, you know, that was towards the tail end, Scott, of, of your Sampras and Agassi eras, right? And, I mean, who did he have really? I mean, you know, Leighton Hewitt, who, who, you know, did a great job in that little period there. But come on, I mean, he's no, you know, he's not any of those other great players. Marat Safin showed up for a little while. Uh, a few of the Spaniards who sort of took turns winning the French Open before Nadal decided that it's his own. I mm. just don't think there was that level of competition, you know, from 2003, you know, through to that 2008. I think Nadal won his first in 2005, you know, when he started with his French Open streak. And then Novak, of course, broke through at the Aussie Open in 2008. So a whole five years between uh, Federer's first slam and Novak's first slam. And I think that that plays a role, to be honest, in terms of assessing uh, your success and, and, where, and where you stand. Uh, but also equally, I think the way you play plays a role. Uh, you know, different people like different styles. Some people prefer, or maybe not prefer, but they like watching defensive tennis. Others like the more attacking tennis. I know I'm a big fan of the serve and volley personally. I've always enjoyed watching really good 
um, you know, volley players like Pete Sampras. He's, he's my favorite tennis player. Uh, and yeah, yeah, so I think it's definitely, you know, puts a spanner in the works and it's a genuine conversation uh, now. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with anything you say. I think I always, I always stop one step short, I think, of underestimating how well a player plays to win a Grand Slam or, you know, whatever is the highest achievement in a, in a sport mm. just because of the competition they play against. I don't like to compare different eras too much. I would not like to compare a player from the era of Wimbledon when Servant Volley was the thing. And Stefan Edberg was one of my favourites growing up, so you've got a, <laughs> a friend in, the, in that regard. Uh, but I wouldn't like to compare them to, to today because the game is so different. But at the same time, I think at least if you're going to have the discussion, there's no way that you can say that Novak's Grand Slams are of less quality or he's had to play less well than of previous generations. And therefore, if he does end up with the, the highest number and as you know, Sure, longevity is, as you say, sports science, all those things. The opportunity is there perhaps where it wasn't for, for previous players. It's very hard, very hard to say that he's not, the, at least within Grand Slam matches, the greatest of all time. And how lucky are we to be, you know, around when all this is happening, which is fantastic. Mate, just lastly, and, and we've run out of time a bit to talk a bit more AFL, but uh, Steve Hawking come out with some interesting comments during the week about tackling in the AFL and how he thinks it's a feature of the game that the AFL doesn't want it to be. A few players have come out, um, especially past players and present players, uh, you know, sort of, uh, especially, you know, Mitch Robinson, Jimmy Bartel, Jonathan Brown come to mind saying, you know what, this is, you know, absurd. Tackling is a big part of the game and it's very, it's a very important skill to have. What are your thoughts on Hawking's comments and just really sort of pie in the sky thinking, what can the AFL do to reduce tackling, uh, you know, from its current rate? Uh, in many ways, I'm quite happy we're running out of time to talk about this because I don't think it deserves a lot of time. I think in the words of a very famous, a very famous film, uh, Australian film, telling is dreaming is my, <laughs> is my quote to give to Steve Hawking. Oh my God. I, I watched Steve Hawking kid play. So I remember, I remember him playing football and I can tell you what, if, if bumps and tackles had been illegal in his time, I don't think he made it. He wouldn't have a career, would he? Probably not. Uh, I'm, I'm not to detract from the fact that he was a reasonable for in his time, but I think this is a this is just another example of the the social media, the the snap grab journalist age that we live in, where an off the offhand comment, which really was not well thought through, and he said it in quite a long paragraph. It's not like he he had to prepare this remark. I can't imagine that this has been through more than just the, the inner. The inner parts of his mind because if he's discussed this with anyone at the AFL and they agree with him that they want to ban tackling or at least reduce it I, oh, I mean oh, I don't know very worried for active I think there's so many things every year that some of them are important and some designed around, especially I think in the last 10 years, the, the reduction in or at least the attempt to reduce head injuries and uh, a few other, uh, so 20, 30 years the, when they brought in the, the, ruck, the ruck circle, um, which was only around about 2000, 2001, that, that kind of era that before then knee injuries to ruckling were very common as well and that reduced injuries if you're playing a contact sport the reality is there's 
you're never going to prevent injuries. Obviously, contact injuries are can be quite traumatic, but for the most part, the major injuries we actually see in AFL are, are not contact injuries. They're based on soft tissue, so turning or pivoting or changing direction or you know, unfortunate landings uh, and similar. So I really think this is a mountain made out of a molehill. I could use so many, so many ridiculous terms to describe this whole scenario. <laughs> if this is a serious line they go down uh, as at the AFL, A, I'd be surprised, but B, I think the amount of backlash that they would get for trying to change the game so much from what it was, I really, I really don't, I really don't see it taking place. I, I can't imagine that they can, I don't think fans will, will take that kindly to such a big chance. Yeah, mate, look, I, I won't spend too much time on it either. I think I, I share your views definitely. I think it's absurd. Tackling is a critical part of the sport. You know, it's a way that sort of defines, you know, hard and tough teams versus, you know, soft teams, right? And a lot of that is down to the tackling. It, it, it talks a lot to effort, tackling. It talks to technique. It talks to your willingness to to be able to expend a lot of your energy actually stopping the other team from moving the ball forward. And it's a lot like playing um, defense in, in basketball uh, and other sports, especially in sports where you go, you know, you're a two-way player, as we call them. So, you know, you have to defend and play and attack. So even the back line now is expected to start a lot of the offense in football, but especially midfielders, right? So you have, you know, your midfielders are probably, you know, the few players that go both ways uh, in the AFL. And with that said, a lot of the uh, defense, which is, of course, a joint effort and depends on positioning and the rest of it, a lot of it goes down to you, your willingness to put in the effort to tackle someone, to get there, to get the ball, to run harder those couple of last meters to make sure you get a body on so that no one gets away. And I think we'd be losing a significant part of our game if we try to diminish that. Uh, and hopefully it's just a storm in a teacup and it's just sort of a, a child of a, of a bad dream uh, that Hawking had and anyone else at the AFL. And we can let this go and, and move on. They've done a good job this year with introducing the zones, I think. I've really enjoyed, you know, that 666 starting positions. I've enjoyed it since the preseason. So, you know, credit where credit, credit is due. But on the other hand, uh, you know, just leave it alone. No one else was complaining about it until you spoke about it. So just let it go. Couldn't agree with you more. I think that's a perfect summation. Mate, we have so much more to talk about, but we really are um, out of time. Thank you so much, Scott. Not a problem, Mo. It's a pleasure. Fantastic. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we'll chat to you soon.